Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 10 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in this 10th and indeed last episode of the fourth series, we're taking a look at all things sanctions. The sheer number and range of sanctions that have been imposed in the last few weeks, together with the intended and sadly unintended consequences for financial services firms and their compliance officers. And for this huge discussion, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Rachel Woolcott and Brett Wolfe. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Susanna. Thanks for having me. Oh, always great to have you too. Thank you for joining. So let's start with sanctions themselves. Brett, what has the US done? Because it often takes the lead in these things. And what is it expecting financial services firms to do about what they've done? Sure. Well, since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, uh, the United States, uh, along with the UK, uh, the European Union and other allies, Uh, have imposed a number of sanctions on the Russian government, uh, Russian businesses, government officials, and wealthy elite. Um, As uh, the Biden administration said from the beginning, uh, when Russia was first amassing its troops, uh, if we had to issue sanctions, we were going to go big and stay big. uh, And that is exactly what the United States has done. Uh, in, In several tranches of sanctions, Uh, We've seen the freezing of Russia's central bank's uh, foreign currency assets, uh, the sanctioning of key Russian banks, um, essentially cutting them off from the global financial system, uh, restrictions on exports of advanced semiconductors and other technology. Um, And we've seen Putin and a number of oligarchs uh, close to him sanctioned. And of course, uh, this has had uh, significant implications for compliance. Um, Boardrooms and compliance officers are universally reevaluating what this crisis means to their sanctions programs. Um, And there are more discussions at this point about cautionary self-sanctioning. And, you know, as opposed to asking, um, uh, should we do business? Um, you know, the question becomes, you know, can we do this business? Uh, as pointed out uh, recently by Justine Walker, uh, the, the head of sanctions compliance and risk at the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists, um, since the launch of the war uh, in late February, governments have imposed targeted sanctions uh, on many of Russia's largest banks. Uh, richest oligarchs and most powerful politicians. Um, in practice, what this ends up doing is requiring financial institutions to conduct enterprise-wide uh, reviews of client relationships, uh, assets, transactions, uh, and counterparties linked to the payments that are being processed. Um, and all of this has to be checked against uh, the very vast an intricate uh, web of corporate structures, investments, uh, uh, and associated individuals tied to these various parties that have been sanctioned. Um, Complicating matters, uh, various jurisdictions involved from the United States to the UK to EU to Canada and Japan uh, have sometimes disagreed on which entities are to be targeted and how they're to be targeted. 
you know, we don't have the consistency that we might have if uh, we were getting leadership uh, from the United Nations Security Council, but uh, because of Russia's membership, um, any kind of action uh, through the UN uh, is going to be vetoed. Um, so we're going to continue to see probably a number of these inconsistencies. Uh, but the U.S. Treasury is very much trying to engage the private sector right now. Uh, in a very impassioned speech uh, earlier this month, uh, U.S. Treasury uh, Assistant Secretary for Terror Finance and Financial Crime, Elizabeth Rosenberg, uh, really laid bare the vital role that compliance uh, needs to play uh, in supporting these government actions. Um, if I may quote her, she said, geopolitical events are evolving fast and we need financial institutions more than ever to act swiftly as we in the government are pushing out new designations and advisories almost daily. We need you to quickly understand your exposure to individuals uh, on the other side of this conflict. I continue that quote. I'm specifically referring to how you think about risk and enhance due diligence when it comes to Russian oligarchs and kleptocrats uh, who may not have been priorities for your compliance efforts in early February, but are now crucial players supporting Putin's power structures. Um, she also noted that the Russian elite are extremely adept at hiding their wealth, uh, which is a uh, another challenge that uh, compliance officers are dealing with right now. Um, here in the United States, uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, uh, which administers U.S. sanctions, has something called the 50% rule, uh, which states that essentially not only do named designated sanctioned parties um, have to be blocked, uh, but any entities in which they have a 50% or greater interest also have to be blocked and are also considered essentially sanctioned, um, which leaves financial institutions that um, perhaps uh, aren't necessarily aware of who owns what in terms of certain shell companies. Um, it leaves them scrambling to try to determine who owns what and how much of it. And that is something financial institutions have been spending a lot of time uh, working on as of late. Um, and in fact, due to the complexity of this, uh, U.S. banks are often looking to simply exit relationships, uh, especially with the Russian oligarchs, uh, even if they've not yet been sanctioned. Uh, and, you know, this is probably something we're going to see more of. I was speaking to a uh, compliance officer about, you know, the complexities of disentangling from a client who hasn't yet been sanctioned, um, because there is the potential for to take for that those individuals to take legal action against the banks. And uh, this particular source had an, had an interesting uh, take on this. I thought he said he would much rather see headlines stating that his bank was being sued. Uh, for exiting a client than to see headlines that authorities uh, were pursuing as financial institution over providing services uh, to oligarchs who were helping to evade sanctions. Um, so if that kind of gives you an idea of perhaps where the risk appetite is shifting uh, from a U.S. bank perspective, 
um, I think that is is somewhat helpful. And you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, crypto as perhaps a way for Russia to evade sanctions. Uh, because we've seen that in the past with countries like Iran and North Korea. Um, but I think perhaps the prevailing wisdom is that while crypto might have been adequate for the needs of an Iran or a North Korea, that there's not the liquidity that would be needed for Russia, a G20 country, uh, to you know, shift its, its payments uh, into the crypto world and out of the traditional banking system. And, um, you know, I've, I, I'm not sure that, you know, it, it's very easy to make the argument that the, the crypto could really play that role, uh, uh, play that role. Uh, although I'd be interested to hear what uh, the others on this, this call have to say, if anyone has any thoughts. I'll, I'll touch on cryptos before I, I, I ask Rachel to um, talk about the UK and U indeed European approach. I think there's several things with cryptos. One, you're absolutely right. There just isn't the depth of liquidity to truly enable whole scale or widespread sanctions evasions. I mean, we're talking about the Russian economy, basically, and that's vast. There isn't the depth in cryptos. The other thing that I think folks need to also focus on is that funds and transactions flowing through cryptos are eminently traceable. You know exactly where they're going and when and where how you get to them. And then when they get to the off-ramp, you know exactly where to wait for them to go. So I would suggest if Russia would like to use cryptos to evade sanctions, well, first of all, good luck. Second of all, we'll, we'll, we'll take it when it all comes off the off-ramp because that, I suggest, is going to mean that cryptos, whilst they make a great headline in all of this, I don't really think it's practical reality unless there are some very, very clever bells, whistles and layering going on in there. And there may be, who knows, but there really isn't the current liquidity in the cryptos world, although let's be frank, that's also growing. But crypto transactions, eminently traceable. I mean, that's what blockchain and digital ledger technology does. It tells you exactly where things are and where they're going. It's not anonymous. Um, on that slightly more cheerful note, hopefully, Rachel, the UK, I mean, I know we're not kind of in the same space as the US in terms of all of the sanctions approach, but where are we in the UK? Um, well, like like you said at the beginning, uh, the U uh, US definitely takes the, the lead on sanctions and the UK definitely would like to think it takes uh, the lead on sanctions in Europe, but I think it says it all that we had to pass a bill uh, a few weeks ago to make it easier to implement fat sanctions more quickly. Um, you know, previously there was a, there was a longer process. Now they've, you know, only after Ukraine was invaded, have they made it so you essentially can add people on the list as and when. Um, it's not that simple, but um, that's part of it. So here, um, I wouldn't say the UK is doing anything uh, innovative or outside the box. Uh, it's a usual mix of asset freezes, uh, prohibitions on transactions with UK individuals and businesses, travel bans, uh, and transport sanctions. So um, 
that means that the, the UK is very much in line with what the US is doing, but they have not done nearly as much yet. And so this is something we can talk about later, this sort of patchwork approach that's developing in the sanctions world. Uh, because uh, navigating what's going on in the US, the UK, and the EU, and other um, allies um, is difficult for compliance officers to pick through. What do you do in these uh, various uh, situations? Um, one thing about the UK is that the overall government approach to sanctions has been criticized on a couple of levels. One was just lack of sanctions in the in the first instance. Their first big bang, they literally sanctioned about four people in two banks. And some of the people had been on sanctions lists in the US for years. So that was kind of embarrassing. Uh, another thing uh, that uh, experts have been critical about the UK for is being too focused on the oligarchs. Uh, just saying, oh, we're going to sanction people who own football clubs, like uh, Abramovich and Uzmanov, who was associated with, um, I think, Arsenal at one point. So it's sort of been like this celebrity, rich, you know, rich people approach. So in that vein, taking a sort of showmanship approach to uh, sanctions implementation uh, yesterday, which was March 29th, the UK's transport minister, Grant Shapps, seized a yacht that was moored in Canary Wharf here in London and posed by it for photos. But the yacht doesn't even belong to a sanctioned individuals. Uh, the UK is claiming <laughs> Uh, that the owner has links to Putin. Um, and I'm sure this will be challenged because uh, I don't see on what grounds they have seized this yacht, except for apparently it's got a infinite wine cellar, whatever that means. So I'm sure that probably played a role in it. Um, but, you know, it's so there's been that kind of silliness, I would say, and this kind of politicization of the whole thing. Uh, as as well, which hasn't been you know particularly enlightening. Uh, the Treasury Select Committee though put out a report on UK uh, sanctions, and th they found some pretty interesting things, and or reported on some interesting things that I I didn't know about, which is probably not that not that strange. But for example, they say in the report that. Essentially, UK firms are more worried about OFAC than they are about uh, the Office for Financial Sanctions Implementation, which is part of the Treasury here in the UK. I think that's kind of a big statement. And uh, Justine Walker, again, who Brent mentioned, said that she, as part of the report, said she did not think our compliance is probably very good because the level we ask people to comply to is compl is too complex. She you know, reiterated the threat from the US um, being a prime motivator to uh, have a good sanctions compliance team, however. And uh, while we're on the UK, uh, US compare and contrast, 
even though there haven't been many uh, off-sea fines, apart from a, a really big one on stand, Standard Charter in 2020, uh, I definitely would keep uh, your eye, uh, firms should keep their eye on the ball with sanctions because it will definitely be coming up in supervisory visits and questions from the UK regulators, particularly the Financial Conduct Authority. And they have been quite busy finding firms for systems and control failings around financial crime recently. This one, one example I have is in 2015, which obviously is not that recent, but it was a 72 million pound fine on Barclays Bank for poor systems and controls around money uh, financial crime that included not having a good program for uh, uh, monitoring politically exposed persons and not doing enough enhanced due diligence. So that is a way that the conduct regulator could uh, punish a firm for having lax uh, uh, controls around sanctions. And, and I would add into that, that any systems and controls focused sanctions failure happening now in a UK firm, I would just remind all firms in the UK that the senior managers and certification regime is most definitely in force. So it's likely not only at this point to be a firm fine, but it has the potential to be personal liability as well particularly given the geopolitics around all of this. Agreed, agreed. Oh, that, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think we could have a whole conversation around that. Mm -hmm. um, but moving on to something else that has very much exercised financial services firms, which is the whole question of SWIFT. SWIFT is how money crosses borders, for want of a better description, I suppose. Brett, SWIFT has, for perhaps the first time, been used as a weapon almost it's been used as a means of sanctioning and punishing um another jurisdiction so the us and swift what what is happening with the exclusions from swift what may be happening in the future how is the us using swift as a tool if you like that put it that way sure uh there was a lot of debate about this uh, back in the days, uh, just when the troops, the Russian troops were amassing on the Ukraine border. Um, there was a, an internal debate within the United States, uh, within Congress, uh, uh, a lot of talk from the Biden administration about whether or not we want to go there uh, in terms of using uh, SWIFT as a, uh, as a bludgeon to hit Russia. Um, there was precedent for it because the U.S. did, uh, in fact, use some swift bans against Iran some time ago. Um, but the idea of imposing a broad swift ban on a G20 country that has so many financial tentacles around the world uh, and is tied into to so many different uh, products being traded around the world, so many commodities um, that, you know, when you go that route, number one, it can lead to unintended consequences. But number two, there was also widespread concern that what we might be doing by using SWIFT as, as a weapon is providing incentive for Russia and China and other uh, 
countries seen as U.S. adversaries at times uh, to develop alternatives to SWIFT um, that, that could, in fact, make uh, take away the, the value of SWIFT uh, from, from a weaponization standpoint, um, and that that could, in fact, push the world away from use of the U.S. dollar as uh, sort of the, the trade denomination of choice. Um, so th there was a lot of concern about that, and then it seemed like a decision had been made that SWIFT was probably off the table. Um, then after the invasion started, uh, very quickly it seemed that perhaps even out of Europe uh, that there came this, this push to go ahead and, and go the SWIFT route. And we saw some banks banned from SWIFT, some Russian banks, a uh, fairly small number. Um, and you know, at this point, uh, I don't know that there will be any further use of SWIFT. I, I think there's probably still a lot of hesitation uh, in part for the reasons I, I previously mentioned um, to, to sort of continue to, to focus on the use of SWIFT. Um, uh, the predominant wisdom or uh, perhaps the wisdom that had seemingly emerged uh, prior to the invasion that it was, was that it was better uh, to simply impose uh, sanctions on specific Russian banks uh, as opposed to uh, using SWIFT as a tool so, you know, perhaps we'd be more likely uh, as sanctions are tightened uh, to see additional banks targeted as opposed to additional use of SWIFT. Uh, but if this crisis has shown us anything, uh, it's that we uh, uh, making predictions can be a risky business um, because, uh, you know, it, it's very unclear at this point uh, which direction we're going to go. But I, I wouldn't tend to think that SWIFT would be would be the focus. Um, I don't know if you all have any thoughts. Well, actually, one point I was going to pick up with Rachel is around the bond coupon payments and SWIFT. I mean, that that's an issue. Well, I think I just wanted to agree with Brett that I think that the SWIFT, uh, the move to remove some of the Russian banks from SWIFT uh, was a big surprise for people who are uh, actively uh, studying uh, how sanctions work and the history of sanctions. People thought that would be definitely off of the table, mainly because the U.S. just w w didn't seem to be into it for a lot of the reasons that uh, Brett just set out. But in terms of the coupon payments, there's been a big anxiety about a potential Russian default. and. On, on their debt, uh, but the coupons now have been paid uh, because what I found out was that bonds sold after Russia was sanctioned over the 2014 uh, Crimea annexation uh, contain a provision for alternative currency payment, and the ruble is one of those alternative uh, currencies. and. Uh, I think it was last week or th this week and last week have been sort of a crunch period for those coupon payments to be made and people have been reporting to Reuters. Uh, there's an excellent article on it. I'll have to dig it out. We can put it in the show notes about how this has been working so far. But 
what people are also saying is watch the space things might be going okay now um but um it might not be wind up to be a swift issue ultimately it might be a lack of revenue from uh, energy sales issue uh it could be uh lack of uh, being, you know, the fact that it's assets overseas are, are frozen and, and things like that. So the advice is definitely do not uh, turn off the alarm bells around uh, Russian sovereign bond uh, coupon payments. Thank you. Yes. And I think that also reiterates Brett's point that expect the unexpected with all of this, mm -hmm. because they could develop in almost any direction in terms of the expectations on firms. And let, let's not forget, these are firms that have just weathered the pandemic, got, gone down a lot of digital transformation, probably still mostly hybrid and flexible working. It's not as though they had nothing else going on. <laughs> so, so yeah. you know, this has all just been layered on top. So there is an awful lot for firms to deal with and particularly their compliance risk and you know financial crime functions to deal with. Um, so, We've talked about huge swathes of what the sanctions were expected to do, directed to do, you know, put in place for. So given all of that, where are we on unintended consequences? I mean, Brett, from your perspective, unintended consequences of all of this? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I think some of them were anticipated. Um, you know, I, I think the scale of the sanctions is is likely to improve ties or to strengthen ties uh, between Russia and China. Um, you know, it could also lead to the development, as I mentioned previously, of um, a payment system, a widely adopted payment system, at least within Russia, China, maybe other countries uh, that could provide an alternative to SWIFT. Um, we've seen, of course, rising oil prices uh, and gasoline prices. Um, and there's a lot of concern given uh, that Russia and Ukraine um, are both major exporters of wheat, uh, that these sanctions uh, could lead to famine in certain parts of the world. Um, you know, I, I, I think we're only just beginning uh, perhaps to, to see the, the unintended consequences um, aside from the, the tremendous burden that this has placed uh, on compliance officers, um, which certainly has been tremendous. Um, you know, I'm, I'm told that, you know, they're using various vendors uh, to try to get to the bottom of, uh, of, of ownership of legal entities. Um, you know, this uh, additional due, uh, customer due diligence and enhanced due diligence um, is costly. Um, I think compliance units at financial institutions are on the verge of being overwhelmed, uh, if not uh, actually completely overwhelmed. Um, I mean, I, I, I think the, the advice uh, that should be taken at this point is for you know, those uh, compliance units to, to try to keep good lines of communication with regulators um, as well as their vendors, 
uh, to ensure that their vendors are updating sanctions lists in, in essentially real time and so forth, um, as well as uh, talking to their, their peers and uh, former government officials who act as consultants. Um, some of these you know, individuals may be able to, to help with some of these unintended consequences to a degree, um, but you know, I, I think we're gonna see more unintended consequences as we move forward, and everyone's certainly keeping an eye on that. Yeah, I have to say, I agree with, well, we will see more. And, and Rachel, from your perspective, I know perhaps one of the unintended consequences is sheer patchwork quilt of what everybody's dealing with, but, but what else confirms, you know, expecting the unexpected in terms of unintended consequences? Well, I think that one of the un unintended consequences for firms, potentially mostly ones in the UK and EU, is that they're going to find problems with their sanctions uh, systems and controls as they go over them. They might find out um, that the sanctions, uh, Russia sanctions that they implemented back in 2014 after the Crimea annexation weren't that great. I think they might find, uh, like Brett was mentioning, a lot of holes in some of the information that they need to really dig down into questions around ownership. Um, uh, in this, I think just for UK firms is a level of sanctions that they won't be familiar with. Uh, so one thing that uh, lawyers have been talking about is the, uh, uh, the sanctions on the Russian government and I think this the central bank and this idea was like well the you know the government do, what does the, what do the government and government officials what do they actually control and should we how do we determine that and how do we um, determine whether or not we should be putting asset freezes on certain uh, individuals and companies uh, that might have some government association or control. And I think it's definitely worth, worth looking back at the off-sea guidance and probably the OFAC guidance about what control actually means. Um, I think another unintended consequence, if, that's, if this is that's the right word for it, is just this sort of lack of guidance that um, people are talking about, which isn't ha helping <laughs> answer some of these questions about uh, implementing th these contradictory regimes. Uh, what do we do when Europe says one thing, uh, US says another thing, and the UK says nothing? Uh, what, what, do we, what do we take from that? Uh, and uh, Brett mentioned going to uh, trusted advisors, um, talking to uh, regulators, I, I don't know how much um, that is available here in terms of you know, regulatory expertise in sanctions. Uh, Offsea only has 30, about 37 full-time employees. And if you look on their website, 
<laughs> the, the guidance, the, well, first of all, they don't give you any contact details for contacting specific people with questions. If they do, I couldn't find it. Another thing that they don't have is uh, a kind of a searchable database online of who might be sanctioned that OFAC has that. They don't have any frequently asked questions. So you're very much on your own in terms of figuring out what your strategy is. I mean, the sanctions guidance that Offseed publishes, I would, it's less than 40 pages long. It covers everything but in not a very big amount of detail. Um, so I think that that's a challenge. Uh, you've got to figure out who you're going to turn to for good advice. And uh, in the absence of any uh, kind of golden source of information in terms of what you need to be doing, you're going to have to be, and this is something that we talk about all the time on this podcast, t taking notes, writing things down, mm -hmm. um, documenting, decision-making. And so in the event anybody does come and ask questions, then you, you'll have some answers for them. That is the perfect segue into my takeaway for compliance officers, Rachel. Thank you. Because my <laughs> takeaway is absolutely that record keeping is essential firms are moving heaven and earth to try to comply with all of these sanctions but what they have absolutely got to do as part of that is document document everything in great and granular detail because should push come to shove and you know it will at some point and the regulators around the world whatever shape they're taking whether that's OFAC in the US the FCA here in the UK they will go and see what firms have been doing they will ask they will want information you have to have documented I mean one of the absolute fundamental rules of regulators and supervisors is if it's not written down it didn't happen you could have done all of the right things if you haven't evidenced it it's not worth a bean, it really isn't. So please, as part of all of your efforts on sanctions compliance, document, and then document some more, and then double check your documentation. Um, and I think that is your absolutely your best insurance policy, that you will have been seen to have done the right things in the right ways. So Rachel, bouncing back to you, takeaways for compliance officers? Well, I just wanted to, uh echo what you said. Um, I think that's going to be key, especially for UK and EU firms. Uh, I would also try and see what, what kind of new data sources are available in terms of investigating uh, beneficial ownership and things like that. I think that's going to be quite difficult. I'm not exactly sure what's on the market right now, but it seems like there are a lot of sort of uh, reg tech providers uh, promising a lot. But overall, I would remember the reputational risk uh, topic that Brett raised earlier on. I think that's really important. And I think after we've had the Panama Papers and the FinCEN leaks and all these various investigations into global corruption, uh, 
that always didn't shed new light didn't they didn't always shed new light on uh, goings ons in well how the super wealthy and oligarchs and corrupt individuals uh, hide their assets but it is a reputational risk and I guess you want to be careful and make sure that your firm isn't in the next round of the Panama Papers or that one of your private banking clients uh, wasn't a you know a murdering Bulgarian drug dealer that that sort of thing I'm, I'm just focused on murdering Bulgarian drug dealers now right okay. <laughs> thank you very much Rachel um that was that's a pulled from the headlines I didn't you know make it up. oh well there we are <laughs> I can put a link in the show notes <laughs> yeah that, that, that's quite a headline yeah um Brett takeaways from compliance officers yes I, I mean I, I I would definitely add my voice uh to, to what you mentioned, Susanna and Rachel, uh, in terms of the importance of documentation. Um, uh, institutions are spending a lot of money uh, building new uh, sanctions compliance infrastructure right now uh, to implement the Russia sanctions. Um, and of course, all of that needs to be documented. The decision-making processes need to be documented. Um, you know, firms have to certainly make decisions um, in, in terms of risk tolerance uh, and which clients uh, may need to be exited uh, despite not being on a sanctions list. Um, and I think another very important thing to keep in mind is this isn't going to end anytime soon. Um, this conflict shows no sign of waning. Uh, and even when it does, uh, I don't you know, see any kind of quick withdrawal of these sanctions. Um, so, you know, firms need to be prepared for the long haul um, and um, they're, you know, to a large degree, uh, everyone is, is just going to have to weather this storm. And hopefully they have the resources to weather that storm. Um, on that note, Rachel and Brett, thank you very much for your contributions today. And thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. And thank you for listening to Series 4. We hope, as ever, you found this episode interesting and useful, and we'll be back with season five after Easter. I'll include, as usual, the links to the pieces referenced in the podcast in the episode notes and the usual link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. As ever, very much appreciated if you could take the time to review the podcast, and please do let us know any suggestions for future topics. Thanks for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.